This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. A lot to do. We'll talk about uh, the week that was with Donald Trump. It seems like every day there was something new. Um, But if you heard something he did, was this yesterday? My days are getting confused here. I think it was yesterday. He did an interview with Hugh Hewitt. And uh, he gave a wink and a nod to you, really. I mean, if you've been listening the last year or so, if we've, as we've analyzed Trump and his ability uh, to market and brand and uh, stagecraft and persuasion and all the rest, then you knew exactly what his most recent comment was about Obama being the founder of ISIS. You knew exactly why he did that. And Hugh Hewitt couldn't get it. No one, no one could. The whole media freaked out. And then in an interview... Trump said one sentence that completely got overlooked. That was all the wink of a nod to you. Because you knew what he was doing the whole time, if you've been listening. Uh, anyway, we'll do that coming up in a little bit. But actually, speaking of Hugh Hewitt, I want to do, uh, uh, I want to play another thing on his show, actually. Um, Hugh Hewitt's a great guy, by the way. So Hugh Hewitt had an interview with Ty Woods' wife. Ty Woods, former Navy SEAL. Killed in Benghazi, one of the four Americans. Now, there's some family members of those killed in Benghazi that that are more vocal than others. Ty Woods' wife is uh, on the quieter side. She doesn't do many interviews. She hasn't said much. Ty Woods' dad uh, says some things here and there, but his wife, not so much. And I totally understand him. When she does speak, though, She's incredibly well-spoken and articulate and, uh, and very powerful. So I want to play four clips from her interview. And I think this is important because this was just like a week or so ago. And it's all in the context of Mr. Khan, who spoke at the Democratic National Convention, who got a ton of attention. But Pat Smith, whose son was killed in Benghazi. Um, Ty Woods' his wife. Uh, Ty Woods' his dad, among others. Almost no attention. Uh, Aaron, uh, Aaron Vaughn's mom. Karen, who spoke at the Republican convention. Aaron Vaughn was one of the Navy SEALs who was killed uh, five years ago, a week or two ago, uh, in, in the largest loss of life of Navy SEALs in American history. 17 Navy SEALs were killed in this helicopter crash, 30 Americans total. She spoke at the Republican National Convention and no one in the media picked it up. No, no one cared about what these family members have to say. It's only Mr. Khan. But anyway, here's uh, Ty Woods' wife clip, 1049. I did. And, and you know, I, I don't follow it so closely because um, I, I think that it's important for me to, to use her words, you know, to, to live a life, the life that Ty would want for me to be a good mother to our son. Um, so I do hear snippets a little bit. And, you know, her response uh, to the report when someone had asked her about that, you know, she's dismissive. It's characteristic Clinton. It's characteristic Obama. You know, let's go ahead and sweep that under the rug. It doesn't suit what I am, the 
narrative I'm trying to present about myself, and it's time to move on. And while I understand she's talking about the nation as a whole, you know, I can also extrapolate from that and say, hey, you're not telling me to move on. Nobody can tell me to move on. Nobody can tell me how to feel. Nobody can tell me how to think about it. So, you know, for someone in that position, I feel like sometimes she says things so that her words are easily offensive. Do you think she was speaking to you specifically when she said move on in the way that Mr. Trump was speaking specifically to the cons when he responded to their criticism? I think that Hillary Clinton is um, a very smart woman. She's been playing this political game for a very long time. She doesn't, I, I believe the only time she's ever been completely unhinged was when she did have that comment in front of Congress, what difference does it make? But any other time, you know, I think that she says things, they're well thought. Um, and, you know, the fallout after that, um, whether it be big picture or small picture pointed, personal or not, um, is intentional. Uh, I'm sorry, I did a bad job setting that up. The first question was, what do you think of when Hillary said it's time to move on in relation to Benghazi? But I think you got that as it went on. Um, that last point there, uh, she's so right. So Hillary Clinton is is really smart. I mean, is, is there anyone out there who's ever called her dumb? I mean, you may disagree, and I do pretty much everything, but she's not dumb. She's really smart. And, and But real quick, smart doesn't mean you're a wonderful person. Right? You can be smart at deceiving. You can be smart at distracting and scamming. And you can be really good at creating a giant foundation to funnel money through as you peddle influence around the world. I mean, you can be really smart and do those things. You can be really smart at figuring out ways to evade detection from the FBI. There's such thing as criminal masterminds. They're smart. They just use their intelligence for bad things. So Hillary Clinton's smart. She's a politician. And as Ty Woods, his wife just said there, Every word she uses is calculated. Every single one. Obama's the same way. I want to talk coming up uh, about his press conference he did earlier in the week about the $400 million cash given to Iran in exchange for the four Americans uh, who were were held hostage there. And a former CIA uh, official who has spent his entire life detecting lying said there's no doubt no doubt in his mind. In his professional opinion, he's been doing this for decades. He said there's no doubt that President Obama was lying about the $400 million, and it was indeed uh, a ransom. And he outlined a few obvious tells. I don't want to sidetrack now. We'll get to that coming up in a little bit. But the point is, Hillary, President Obama, a lot of politicians are excellent at this. Those two just happen to be Two of the best. All right, I want to play one more clip here. This is, uh, again, Hugh Hewitt interviewing Miss Woods, Ty Woods' wife. Uh, the question here is, do you trust Hillary Clinton? No, I don't. Um, and I have personal experience with that. You know, when, I, when, I, when things like this come up that question her integrity, um, and then you hear about Donald Trump and the things that he says, you know, I, I think, you know, I feel like everybody and this is my opinion, gets truly bent out of shape about how Trump says things. But time and time again, we've seen that Hillary is a woman who has repeatedly acted in a way that isn't commander-in-chief-like, you know? So I feel like the media forces us to base our decision, base our vote on someone who sounds bad 
versus someone who has, there's actual evidence on how someone has acted when the chips were down. And in my case, we know how she acted. She let it go. She, you know, she turned her back. So to me, that's just, you know, more, more evidence to, to testament, as a testament to see how she would be as a president. Aaron Vaughn's mom, who I mentioned a second ago, said the exact same thing. The exact same thing. And her son, Navy SEAL, killed in 2011. Uh, 30 Americans were killed in that helicopter crash. 17 Navy SEALs. She was telling the story just the other day that Trump and 20 Gold Star families met before he gave a speech in Florida. Met for 30 minutes, no cameras present at all. And she contrasted that with when her son was killed and all the Americans' bodies were being returned to Dover. And unanimously, she says unanimously, all the families agreed that the president can be there, but they all said no cameras. They don't want any cameras there at all. And there were a ton of cameras there. He turned it into a photo op. So that, that's, that's Aaron Vaughn's mom's uh, background. And, and then she went on and said this, clip 1070. Has she ever called you again since the day? Oh, I'm sorry. Do we have, clip 1070 is the uh, different one. Sorry. Do we have 1070? If you're going to just there be outraged that one person says something that, that could be construed as a, a flippant remark without a lot of thought put behind it, you know, what about the outrage over the things people do? What about the outrage over, you know, Hillary Clinton still to date insinuating that those grieving parents who say she said one thing must be mistaken? You know, it's just actions mean a lot more to me than words. That's that's just kind of the, the angle I come from on it. And I- That's it. Same argument, right? Same right. Now imagine this campaign ad here. By the way, I have no idea what Trump is spending his money on. Right? Does anyone have any idea? Tens of millions of dollars. I haven't seen anything. The only the only there's only like eighty six days or something. The only thing I can imagine is that Trump knows that the last twenty percent of people don't make up their mind until like the day before. So he's waiting for the literally the final three days before he starts spending all this money with this massive dumping of $80 million or $100 million worth of ad. I have no idea why he's not doing more ads now. But how about this ad right here? Hi, I'm Dorothy Woods. My Navy SEAL husband was killed in Benghazi when Hillary was Secretary of State. Hi, I'm Karen Vaughn. My Navy SEAL son was killed in Afghanistan when Hillary was Secretary of State. This is the Hillary that we know. And goes on from there. I mean, it's you can't you can't ignore that and their message because they both said this in the same week they, and they don't know each other they, they didn't coordinate this this wasn't focus groups but both of these two grieving family members said yeah yeah sure trump may say inappropriate things but president obama and hillary clinton have done things that have led to the deaths of the people that we love the most in this world and to me actions speak louder than words i mean that's now, you could say it's apple and oranges because Hillary and, and Obama were in power and Trump never was. And that's fine. I totally get that. But that's I'm just saying it's a powerful argument that both these family members have made. I want to take a break here. We'll come back. Uh, two more clips of Ty Woods' wife that I want to play. Uh, she has a lot more to say about Hillary. We'll do it next on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network.
in the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. This is Mike Slater. Slater Cassatters. Two more clips I want to play here of, uh, I'm sorry, I never. I don't think I said her name. I apologize. Dorothy Woods. Dorothy Navarez Woods. Ty Woods' wife. Ty Woods, uh, one of the Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. Uh, she did an interview with Hugh Hewitt. Uh, love Hugh. And uh, I want to play two more clips of uh, this, talk, talking about Hillary Clinton here. Uh, clip 1051. I called you again since the day you met her upon the return of uh, Ty Woods' remains to the country. No, she has not. Uh, the SEAL community of which Ty was a member, and you are yourself a veteran, when they talk to you, do they have confidence in her as commander-in-chief? No, they do not. Why not? Because these are men who loved Ty. And while some of them knew him personally, others feel him as a brother. And irrespective of whether or not um, she becomes president, you know, they are going to do what is the right thing to do. You know, men at, the, at this caliber, and, you know, I take that back. Men and women who serve our country because they volunteer, you know, they, they expect, and we at the very least should expect, that we will take care of them. We say we take care of their families at home, but when they are serving us in dangerous places and they need help, we expect to go help them. They expect us to go help them. This instance, she did not. And if she did this to these guys... She's going to do it again. You know, she did this to me, and I can say that I take it personally. I tell people, you know, I am a a woman. I am a mother. I am an immigrant. I am a veteran. I am her demographic. She did this to me. She will do this again. I I believe that. That is my personal opinion. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, It's amazing. Now, there's two ways we can talk about this. Uh, I'm going to stop making the political point um, that Trump needs to share her story and share her message and, and what a powerful argument that is against Hillary, what she just said right there. She said, if she did this to these guys, then she's going to do it again. She did this to me. That's incredibly powerful, but I'm not going to make that argument anymore, right? You get it. You get it. So, so as you listen to that clip and as we play one last clip coming up here, just think about how that, that can be used in a political context against Hillary. Normally, I would never even make that, but we only got 80-something days here until the election, so just giving some advice to uh, Donald Trump here. Um, but we'll put that aside for now. I want to address just what she's saying. If you still haven't seen the movie 13 Hours, please go see it right now, like this weekend, today. The movie's great, but... Like it's fine in and of itself, but knowing that this is how it went down, the guys who survived say that they wouldn't have changed a thing. Whenever I see a movie based on a true story, something happens in the movie and I'm like, no, that didn't really happen. Really? So then I'll go and I'll spend a couple hours researching. Like, if that, is that really how it went down? And sometimes yes, sometimes no. But the guys who were there say they wouldn't have changed a thing. This is exactly how it happened. That's powerful. It's important. I think I've told this story before. When I, when I watched it, I went with three military guys. 
and they've all been deployed multiple times and war zones all around the world. One of them's actually deployed right now. I asked where he's going. He told me a place. I've, I, 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 I still don't, I can't even repeat it. I don't know what it, I've never heard in my life. I've, I've never, never heard. It was a country. I've never heard of it. I, I forget what it is right now. What in the world? So these three guys have been all over. We left the movie theater. They didn't say a word. We walked out of the theater. One of them went to the bathroom. We waited, waited in the lobby. No one, no one said anything. We walked out the theater, down the escalator, and we all parked in different areas, and everyone just left. Didn't even say goodbye to me, to each other. Didn't look at each other. Just every, they left. They didn't say a word. It was, I've never seen it like it. And it's because the movie, not the movie, what happened, what was portrayed in the movie was crushing. It was spirit crushing. Because Benghazi is the story of men who were left behind. And and I thought I knew how it went down just based on hearing different things about it. But you see the movie, you're like, oh, I, I had no idea. We'll start with the fact that, well, I don't even, I could go forever. But how about the fact that there were 30 or 40 CIA f- officials inside the building that they were protecting? I didn't even realize that. If it weren't for these Americans, the Navy SEALs who saved, who, who held back the attacks for as long as they did, then there'd be 40 dead Americans, not four. It's the story of men being left behind. Everything about us, everything about our country, everything about our military is about leaving no man behind. But in Benghazi, men were left behind. And if they didn't luck out, and truly, if the few sheepdog who were there didn't, couldn't hold out, you know, they, they didn't hold out as long as they did, then there would be 40 Americans dead. But again, it's, it's our ethos. Even in the Olympics, right? The, Olymp- the uh, swimming relays. There's one tonight, by the way, Phelps' final race. Uh, the beach volleyball players, the USA basketball teams, terrible, by the way. <laughs> they love to beat Czechoslovakia or something, or Slovenia by, no, Serbia, Serbia. They beat Serbia by six, four points. They came to the end. Anyway, all these teams talk about how they're always there for each other, right? Someone makes a mistake, they're there to pick them up. They're cheering for each other, they're encouraging each other. The women's gymnastics team, uh, the two girls who made it, uh, only two per country can can do the individual all around. Gabby Douglas, who won the gold medal four years ago, was the third best American. She she wasn't even able to compete, but she was still there cheering. Right? We're always there for each other, and these are silly games. Now, put that in a life or death situation in the military. It's the ultimate leave no man behind environment, and our government, our leaders, left Americans behind. It's soul crushing, especially to my free th- three friends who have been in situations like that. And they're wondering if this is who we are going to become. Very last clip here, 1052. Men, Americans vote for if their concern is the taking care of the military and of veterans and especially of Gold Star families. So um, I'm not going to tell anyone how to vote, but this is I, I want to put it very simply. I realize sometimes that we all have the best intentions and that we make mistakes. I teach my four-year-old son to admit when you're wrong to say you're sorry, and how are you going to fix it? To be honest with you, Hugh, if Hillary Clinton had done these three things regarding Benghazi, I wouldn't be talking to you today. But she, if, but Hillary Clinton cannot do what parents all over the country do to teach their kids right versus wrong. So she cannot fundamentally be our commander-in-chief. Uh, you know, it's that simple, it's that empirical to me. Um, I, I, I wouldn't teach my son, how, you know, to, to treat other people like that. 
And now she wants to be in charge of other people's funds? No. Hmm. Gold star wife. Veteran herself. No media attention. But you just heard it. So go spread her message. Coming up next, I got a clip here from a State Department spokesperson that I, I, I never thought I'd ever hear. That This is really one of the most disturbing things possible. I, I Play it next. You decide. Mike Slater Show. Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. listening to Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, before we even start this conversation, you have to hear this. I, I don't know if you've heard it yet. Even if you have, this clip should be played often. We need to keep this on the ready so that whenever we talk about something coming out of the State Department, we play this clip. I I never thought I'd I'd hear it, hear this. I mean, I'll, I'll play right. This is a State Department spokesperson just the other day, 1045. Anyway, welcome to the State Department. I think we have some interns in the back. Welcome. Uh, good to see you in this uh, exercise and transparency and democracy. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> Sorry. I thought it was, I didn't mean to break I thought it was an exercise, of, an exercise <laughs> in spin and obfuscation. <laughs> All right. Can you tell this is my last briefing before vacation? Uh, okay. What? How can that be? The other voice you heard there was the AP reporter. I heard that. I said, was this real life? Like, or is this a funnier die clip? Like, what do we, you know, we always used to say when someone lies, you know, how can they say that with a straight face? He obviously couldn't. He was welcoming the interns to a State Department press briefing. You'd think that's pretty important. Like, hey, everyone, listen, this is really important. Really glad you're here, and uh, let's learn, uh, uh, you know, about how this process works. Something like that. But he cracked up, and it wasn't like he he had a smirk. Right? It'd be one thing if I said, "Hey, go to our Facebook page and watch the video," and you can see he has a little smirk in the corner of his mouth. He doesn't really mean that he's transparent. It wasn't a smirk. He laughed out loud. He couldn't contain himself. They know they're a bunch of liars. That's amazing. All right. So whenever you hear of anything coming out of the State Department, just keep that in mind. All right. I want to talk for a second about uh, Iran and the $400 million that we gave in exchange for hostages. That's exactly what happened. Uh, This is from Phil Houston. He has a company called Q Verity, private company that uh, people pay to... Help detect deception and liars. So his credentials are, he developed a model when he worked for the CIA of how to tell when someone's lying. And he, he did this after decades of experience and conducting you know, thousands and thousands of interviews. So he's a pretty good eye for this. And this is what he said about President Obama's press conference, which I think was on Monday, right? Was it Monday? 
Sorry, my days are screwed up. But, but it was, um, I've been out of town all week, so I forget what day was what. But uh, President Obama did a press conference in seven minutes talking about, no, no, that wasn't hostages. It was, uh, it was a coincidence. So this is, uh, this is the CIA guy. Our analysis of the behavior exhibited by President Barack Obama in explaining the payment suggests that it was almost certainly a precondition for the prisoner's release. He says, first and foremost, was the evasion behavior exhibited by the president in the form of denial problems associated with the ransom question. We never heard the president explicitly state, quote, we did not pay ransom to secure the release of these four Americans. Instead, the president relied on the nonspecific denial, quote, we do not pay ransom for hostages. Do you hear the difference there? There's a difference between what the president said, we do not pay ransom for hostages, which is very general, to we did not pay ransom to secure the release of these four Americans, which is very specific. And if you're being evasive, you try to be as general as possible. Uh, the CIA guy says, the denial issue here is its isolated delivery. Uh, the denial problems are classic deceptive indicators. So this is a classic lying technique. Uh, your kids use it all the time, right? Your kids have uh, developed this against you. Uh, let's say your kids, uh, your, your your son is not allowed to go to Jimmy's house. Jimmy, whoo, Jimmy, am I right? Classic Jimmy, bad, bad influence, this is Jimmy. No, no good character. Bad, 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 bad little kid. Uh, so you don't want your son going to Jimmy's house ever because you know what happened last time he was at Jimmy's house. It was all Jimmy's fault. So not allowed to go to Jimmy's. So your son comes home uh, after playing around all day. And you say, hey, son, did you go to Jimmy's house today? No. Okay, good. And then he goes, on. okay, is that a lie? Well, I mean, is that a lie? I mean, I mean, your son, he went to Charlie and Jimmy's house. So we didn't go to just Jimmy's house. Uh, so yeah, yeah the, the question is, did you go to Jimmy's house? I mean, I, mean, I went to Charlie's house too. So you know, no, I didn't go to just Jimmy's house. So yeah, and it's a game that liars play. Now you're probably thinking, well, Senator, that yeah, but that's this is what liars do to the, right. That's how they get around things. You be overly general. Uh, Instead of specifically, people are asking. I got another clip here. I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't pull it. It's uh, state. Another State Department spokesperson it was just yesterday, and they were asked about. I think it was about Hillary's emails and the, the newest batch, where they showed there's connections between her foundation and the State Department. And the people, the State Department, the reporters were asking about very specific emails, very specific emails, very specific people at a very specific time. And the spokesperson just kept saying over and over again, I, I, I forget what it was, but it was it was something very general, like we always uh, run uh, uh, queries like this through the appropriate processes or something like that. But 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 reporters are saying, yeah, but did you have this person go? We always run the appropriate. Yeah, I I know, but this one time, did you do that too? Or, or we always, right? I mean, just being purposely general like that. All right. So that's argument one. This is the most convincing one to me. And this president does this one all the time. It's the president's, uh, I call it cool guy routine. 
He does this all the time. It's, it's the it's the it's the cool guy. Hey, what do you? Yeah, what? I mean, well, come on. It's, it, he does this when he dismisses an accusation, right? When people accuse him of something, he goes, oh, I'll be coming. No, I've, I've talked about this before, but this the CIA guy actually has a name for it. Uh, he says, of particular concern was the president's aggression behavior, which took the form of an attack on the press and others who raised the ransom question. Clip 1020, uh, excuse me, 1062. Some of you may recall, we announced these payments in January, many months ago. There wasn't a secret. We we announced them for all, to all of you. Josh did a briefing on them. Uh, this wasn't some uh, nefarious deal. And at the time, we explained that Iran had pressed a claim before an international tribunal about them recovering money. Okay, did you catch it? First of all, we'll talk about what they really announced in January next. Oh, good. So, because the president does that, right? He's like, I told you all this stuff in January. Like, what's the big deal? Uh, I'll tell you what he really said in January coming up. Um, but did you catch the cool guy act there, right? So, this is what the CIA guy says. He says the attack statements were amplified by the smiling and chuckling. Another form of aggression behavior we often see when people are being deceptive in a matter that's extremely serious. The enormity of the ransom for hostages issue cannot be overstated. So when we see this inappropriate smiling or laughing, we attribute it to aggression in the form of dismissing an opposing position and those who voice it out of hand. Okay, so it's like, you know what, <laughs> guys, we started this in January. Like, I know you're looking for a story, but I'm like, what's a big deal? Right, and you know this is true. Like, this, everyone does this. This, la- this laughing and chuckling at an inappropriate time. Let's say uh, there's a wife accusing her husband of cheating on her. And she says, Charlie, are you cheating on me? And he says, what? No, 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 I would never. Why, come on, honey, come on. <laughs> I would never cheat on you. Right, it's, it's laughing at a very inappropriate time. A chuckle at a very inappropriate time is an automatic sort of defense mechanism that people have when they are lying. And the president did it there. Can we? Are we able to hear that clip one more time? Is there any positive, Steve? Is we had that uh, pulled up? Ten seconds. Watch again? this story surface. Some of you may recall we announced these payments in January, many months ago. There wasn't a secret. We we announced them for all, to all of you. Josh did a briefing on them. Uh, this wasn't some uh, nefarious deal. And at the time, we explained that Iran. Yeah, he does it a few other times throughout the thing too. So. Uh, listen, this is not me talking. This is a CIA guy who's done this for his entire life and picked up on these things that most people, I, I think, wouldn't pick up on. Uh, one last little paragraph here. He says, and then there's the intense persuasion. Bum, bum, bum. Hold on, let's see here. Uh, for example, the president invoked the heartbreaking president in his heartbreaking presidential task of meeting with the families of other hostages. 
quote, we've got a number of Americans being held all around the world and I meet with their families and it is heartbreaking. Despite his best efforts to manage everybody's perception, the president appears to be relying on a technicality to disguise the payment as something other than a precondition of release of the four Americans or what most of us would call a ransom. Um, so his example there is, sorry, I skipped over this one sentence. I'm sorry. This was the important sentence. Yeah. yeah I'm trying to explain this clear. So it's when he brings up the heartbreaking thing, it's, it's to distract from the actual question itself. Okay. So the actual question itself, was this $400 million in cash, which we'll talk about more detail next. Was this a precondition for release of the four American hostages? And he does all the other evasion techniques that we talked about, but then puts the exclamation point on the end with, listen, I have uh, the heartbreaking task of meeting with Americans who are for their families or family members are held hostages around the world. It's like, yeah, okay, but here, like, <laughs> did you do, you really have an answer to here at this moment? Did you give, well, listen, I have a heartbreaking task of uh, meeting with, uh, like, yeah, I know it's heartbreaking, but that's all all the more reason why you shouldn't have this shouldn't be a ransom and we're making sure that it wasn't a ransom otherwise we're gonna have a lot more heartbroken family members in america was their family members are taken hostage which we've already seen a couple more americans being tasted taken hostage in iran since you did this in january so you're making our point exactly so again take this for all for what you like but former cia guy whose entire professional life has been focused on detecting lies and liars says that this iran press conference reeked to the high heavens one more point about iran we'll do it next mike slater so the blaze radio network spread the word you're listening to mike slater on the blaze radio network This is one of those times I get really, really frustrated at the uh, media cycle and how quick it is. How most stories get about half of a media cycle. A big story will get one. A giant story may get two, maybe three media cycles. And then the dumbest stories of all will get like a week. Um, But the important things will maybe get one media cycle and then it's just gone. So the $400 million to Iran. And then, by the way, the president knows this. Hillary Clinton knows this. She knows if you just delay then it's like it never happened. We just have attention spans of a gnat. So they use that to their advantage. So this Iran thing, it's pretty big deal, but it's just gone now, right? It's a week later. Like this was news on Monday and I, I already feel like, well, gosh, six, six days ago. Is it even relevant anymore? Yeah, <laughs> it will always be relevant. Um, so this is the president talking about, he says, um, uh, so he dismisses it. He says it's it's the man quote the manufacturing of outrage in a story that we disclosed in January. Right? He does that all the time. That's the cool guy thing. That's the arrogant dismissal of anyone with a valid question. So what did he release in January? This is important. If he says, "Hey guys, we told you all this in January. What's the big deal? What did you tell us in January?" Well, he did say something, but there was no mention of the amount of money, the time frame, how the money would get there, and of course what it would be used. Once Iran gets it, this is what he said. He said the third piece of work, this is back in January, talking about the Iran deal. The third piece of work that we got done this weekend involved the United States and Iran resolving a financial dispute that dated back more than three decades. 
He said, Iran will be returned its own funds. By the way, if you don't know how this worked, uh, back in 1979, or before 1979, Iran gave America $400 million to build some jets, and then the revolution happened, and we didn't give them their money back. So they want the money back and interest. <laughs> so th- that's the $400 million, That's the principal. And then the interest is $1.7 billion, which is what we're ultimately going to give Iran. $1.7 billion. We're giving them interest on the money post-revolution. So he says, Iran will be returned its own funds, including appropriate interest, but much less than the amount sought. This is my favorite line. For the United States, the settlement could save us billions of dollars that could have been pursued by Iran. So there was no benefit to the United States in dragging this out. I love that. First of all, there were four previous presidents who dragged it out just fine because none of them wanted to be known as the guy who gave uh, uh, Iran $1.7 billion because they know that they're going to use it to fund terrorist organizations. Okay, so it's been dragged out just fine. But also all the coulds, right? The idea that, well, we got to give them $400 million plus interest because we could have to pay them way more. Yeah, or, or you could pay them none still. <laughs> but more just dismissal. I get the arrogant dismissal. That's how he treats the American people. And we see it time and time again. This one, no different. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America is the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. I want to play a uh, one quick clip here from Trump's economic speech the other day and lead into a, uh, a commercial that Hillary Clinton has that I believe is the only the second effective commercial that she's had. Uh, everything else has been useless. So, but she's got a good one here. But Trump can easily, easily spin it around to his own benefit. So that's what we've got planned here. Let's get right at it. Ten sixty. This is a little bit from uh, from Trump the other day. All Hillary Clinton has to offer is more of the same: more taxes, more regulations, more bureaucrats, more restrictions on American energy and on American production. More of that. If you were a foreign power looking to weaken America, you couldn't do better than Hillary Clinton's economic agenda. (laughs) Nothing would make our foreign adversaries happier than for our country to tax and regulate our companies and our jobs right out of existence. The one common feature of every Hillary Clinton idea is that it punishes you for working and doing business in the United States. Every policy she has tilts the playing field towards other countries at our expense. And that's why she tries to distract us with tired political rhetoric that seeks to label us, divide us, and pull us apart. 
My campaign is about reaching out to everyone as Americans and returning to a government that puts the American people first. All right, so that was uh, at the end there, one of 14, I believe, organized, orchestrated disruptors during that one speech. I wanted to highlight that point there because I think that's the making of something really good uh, and combining economic issues with foreign policy issues. By, I don't want to say by far, but most people, number one issue is the economy. And uh, number two is foreign policy. And everything else is just whatever. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, it's economy. So if you And then Trump is winning when it comes to foreign policy issues. So if you can combine those two into one big thing, that's, that's very smart. Our weak economy at home makes us a target. Makes us weak abroad. It's common sense. But I don't hear that, that argument made often. So I think uh, I got to give kudos to Trump for doing that. I think he should do a lot more of it. And I also think he needs to do a lot more of talking about how hard it is to do business here in America. So this is the Hillary commercial that uh, that she's been playing. I saw it a lot. I've seen it a lot during the Olympics. It's a clip from a Trump appearance on David Letterman like 10 years ago. And Letterman's calling him out for having Trump ties made in China and Trump shirts made in Bangladesh. Now, it's very effective. Can we play it here? It's 1061. Here's the ad. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve this message. As a line of clothing. Now, where were these made? These were made, I don't know where they were made, but they were made someplace. But they're great. It's ties, shirts. Cufflinks, everything sold at Macy's, and they're doing great. Where are the shirts made? Bangladesh. Bangladesh. What is good? We employ people in Bangladesh. It's ties? Where are the ties they made? Have to These work are too. beautiful ties. They are great ties. The ties are made in where? China? China. Ties are made in China. Okay. Re- really effective ad. Trump can easily, easily preempt this and make it not only a negative, but make it a positive. And he could have done it right after he talked about uh, our economy and foreign policy and stuff in that clip I just played. All he has to say is, hey, everyone, listen, I sell ties. 20 years ago, when I started making ties, I wanted to make them in America. I looked everywhere. Can't be done. It's too expensive. Too expensive. I'm trying to, I'll channel Trump's, uh, Speaking here, when I had all the best people go out, and I said, "Find some place to make the ties in America," and and they all came back to me and they said, "Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, we can't make ties anywhere. Nowhere in America can we make ties." I said, "What do you mean we can't make? No, you can't do it. It's too expensive. No one can get the permits. All these crazy permits, and the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, they won't let anyone open up tie manufacturers. You can't do it. You have to do it in China." So that's why we make our ties in China. Isn't that horrible? There's all these companies that want to do business in America, but they can't because of the policies from Hillary Clinton. Vote for me. I'll do these three things. Lower taxes, get rid of the EPA, lower regulations. We'll get all these companies back in America, and everyone's going to be making everything in America. Again, right? Whatever. I mean, see how that works? Like, turn my advice to Trump is to, when it comes to the ties, instead of it being a huge liability, turn it into you are a victim. You, as a businessman, are a victim of the Obama economy or whatever, right? Of, of, of environmentalism, of regulations, and of high taxes. You're the victim. 
And if it weren't for Barack Obama, if it weren't for Hillary Clinton, what she's going to do, then I would be making ties in America, and so would everyone else. If Trump can own it, okay, here's the deal. If Trump doesn't do that, Hillary's going to run that ad over and over and over again and make Trump look like a hypocrite. And no one likes hypocrites. But if Trump owns it, then he can look like a victim and a hero for wanting to fix it. Right? Because he can say, oh, you know, listen, one of the reasons, one of the most re- number one reasons I want to run for president is to make America business friendly again so that we can make things in America so that companies from around the world will be flooding into America and there'll be so many jobs available for everyone. You won't even know how many, you won't even know which one to choose. And I can't let Hillary be president because I know it would just be more of the same and no one would be able to do anything here in America uh, like I can't make my ties here. I was talking to a friend the other day. He has a friend who makes uh, cheap umbrellas. Super cheap. Like when you're walking around New York City and it rains and these guys come out and sell umbrellas for $5, like those umbrellas, like, like super cheap pieces of junk umbrellas. And he has to travel to China four times a year. Uh, to you know, monitor the manufacturing of them, and he hates it. He hates going over there. So my friend said, yeah, "Why do you do it? Uh, why don't you just make them here?" And he said, "I can't. Can't. Can't be done. There is no place to make them. Does not exist. Oh, you mean it doesn't exist for the price? Nope. Nope. Doesn't exist. Impossible. If money was no object, would be impossible. The permits do not exist. Can't. Can't happen. That is an easy narrative." to own for Trump and then have Hillary respond. We made a Facebook video the other day uh, about the importance of getting on the offense. So if Trump sets the narrative every morning and then directs the media to ask Hillary a specific question, they'll do it. You know, my favorite example of this was Rand Paul. Rand Paul in the beginning of his campaign was asked by a reporter, uh, when does life begin? And Rand Paul said, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll give you my answer. But first, you go ask Debbie Wasserman Schultz if she thinks it's appropriate to abort a seven-pound baby in the womb. Okay, you go, you go ask Debbie Wasserman Schultz that question. Then come back to me. I'll answer mine. So they did. That day, media went to Debbie Wasserman Schultz and said, is it okay to abort a seven-pound baby in the womb? And she said, yes. That is called setting the narrative, flipping the script, getting on the offense, putting them on the defense. Rand Paul did a beautiful job of that. So with this, Trump should say, hey, media, dishonest media, why don't you go ask Hillary why she wants it to be so expensive to do business here that it's nearly impossible. And then all these things are now manufactured in Mexico or China or all these other places instead of here in America. Explain, ask her to explain why she wants to push companies overseas. And then the media will go over there and then people will associate her with companies moving overseas as opposed to what Trump's doing now, which is nothing. And Hillary's making it seem like Trump is the guy who's voluntarily going overseas. Does that make sense? So humble suggestion. 1-888-933-93. Why not own it? Because if not then Hillary is going to hurt him about that. No doubt about it. All right, I want to come back. And when I heard, or I'm going to be honest, I did not hear Trump's speech when he first gave it. 
But I read the uh, that afternoon all these articles about it. And I said, uh, oh, keep into the script, I see. Economics 101, nary a single journalist has ever passed it. Otherwise, they would not write headlines like this. And it is textbook journalistic. Uh, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, whatever. It's just, just total fail. Like they have no idea what they're talking about. Because if you did, you would not write headlines like this. And every single news outlet, illiteracy, that's what I'm like. Textbook economic illiteracy. Every single news article wrote a headline just like this. And there's, they couldn't be more wrong. I'll tell you what it is coming up next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later. All right. So Trump gave his economic speech Monday. Immediately, everyone was writing about his tax plan. And that's fine. But this is always one of the most economically illiterate points that the media makes all the time when a Republican proposes anything regarding taxes. They always say, we can't afford them, right? And they talk about how much the tax cuts are going to cost and, and how we can't afford them. And I hear that thing. What do you mean how much they're going to cost? What do you mean how much tax cuts are going to cost? That doesn't make any sense. So this is an analogy from uh, Barton Hinkle at Reason. He says, imagine you walk into a shoe store. Yeah, you want to buy some shoes. And the salesman says, great news. We just cut our prices by 20%. And you say, oh, no, no, no. I can't afford a price cut like that. I'm leaving. No, no, sir. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Maybe you didn't hear me. We're not raising our prices by 20%. We're cutting our prices by 20%. Uh, Yeah, I heard you. And I'm not going to pay an outrageous increase like that. And you storm out the door. Like, that would make no sense. Like, who who would ever think like that? If you're driving down the street and you see a sign that says 50% off, you don't say, oh my gosh, I can't afford that. That costs too much. Like that is the exact opposite. And all we hear whenever Republicans propose cutting taxes, all we hear about is how much it's going to cost. Uh, this is immediately after Trump's speech. The Hill analysis, Trump's tax plan would cost $9.5 trillion. What? Time Magazine, Trump's tax plan will cost $12 trillion. MSNBC, Donald Trump's tax plan costs $12 uh, Money.MSNBC, or uh, .CNN. Donald Trump's big tax cuts come at a big cost. Huh? CNBC, Trump touts sweeping and costly tax cut plan. And it goes on and on and on. Those headlines are as stupid as the person who walks into a shoe store that's having a 20% off sale and says, whoa, I can't afford that increase in cost. Huh? All right, so why? Where does this come from? It's simple. People who write these reports, these articles, these analyses, don't come at it from the perspective 
of you, the taxpayer. They come at it from the perspective of they, the tax collector. Does that make sense? They don't look at it from your perspective. Who would say, oh, great, I get to keep more of my money. They look at it from the government's perspective, which is, oh, my gosh, we're not going to bring in as much money. So to go back to the shoe analogy, when you go into, let's say, a footlogger and they say, hey, uh, all Nike shoes are 50% off. Is there a single person in the entire country who would say, oh, my gosh, how is Nike going to afford that? (laughs) How can Nike... I don't know if Nike, like, oh my gosh, like, uh, that's, how are they going to bring in revenue to support that? No, everyone's like, oh sweet, half off. So when you go, when you go to a store and they're having a sale, you don't, go, you don't look at it from the store's perspective. You look at it from your perspective, the consumer's perspective. And we should do the same with tax cuts. Don't look at it from the government's perspective. Look at it from your perspective. You, your family, get to keep more of your money. Now you're saying, well, hold on, Slater. Why aren't we all the government? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's how you solve the problem of the government not bringing in as much money as they otherwise would because of the lower taxes. Spend less. That's always the other half of the equation that no one ever talks about. And I blame, I, I don't know, I, don't, I didn't hear the full speech. So I don't know if Trump talked about spending. I doubt it. Most Republicans don't talk about spending. So then when they talk about tax cuts, then the people on the left can come back and say, oh my gosh, how are we going to pay for things? How are we, it costs too much. We're, you know what? Okay, no. Cut spending. So if they say that Donald Trump's tax plan is going to cost $10 trillion over 10 years, first of all, that's absurd. It doesn't cost you anything. But what they're trying to say is that the government's not going to bring in $10 trillion. Okay, fine. Cut spending by $11 trillion over 10 years. Boom. Done. No more deficit. I love when the left all of a sudden cares about the deficit. <laughs> it happens every couple, every once in a while when it's you know convenient. The deficit is all of a sudden a huge problem. Okay, fine. I don't want a deficit either. Spend less money. But to the people who write these brain-dead reports, that's an unfathomable solution. So just keep an eye out for it. Always look at tax questions from the perspective of you, the taxpayer. Because that's all that matters. Oh, but the government's not going to bring in enough money. Okay. Have them spend less. Now, got, a, uh, got into a Twitter argument, a discussion with someone when I made this argument the other day on my local show. And he said, Slater, you're being disingenuous. We have spending obligations we have to pay for. I said, yeah, yeah. I know. I want fewer obligations. This is why people pay off student loan debt. This is why I got out of my car lease. I want fewer obligations. Our government should have fewer obligations. And he wrote back, I love this. This is so good. He said, sure, But why shrink the economy now? I love it. In his progressive brain, and this is true for all of them, government spending is the economy. The economy is government spending. They are the same. So if the government spends less, then the economy shrinks. Like one to one. That's what he said. I said, yeah, I don't want the government spending as much money. He said, yeah, sure. But why shrink the economy now? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's how he thinks. And he wrote back, it is a large part of the economy and sent me some link where government spending is whatever percentage of the spending of the economy, which is fine. But here's, here's where the economic lesson came in. And we had this debate back and forth. You can check it out on our Twitter 
Slater Radio. It was textbook. I said, what happens if the money the government spends, or excuse me, what would happen to the money that the government spends if they never took it from you in the first place? Would the money just disappear? And he said, if you're talking deficit spending, yes, it basically disappears. I said, okay, what happens when you don't spend money? What do you do with it? He said, me personally, I save it. Ah, excellent. We're getting somewhere. I'm assuming you save it in a bank. What does the bank do with your savings? And he said, some of it is loaned out. Some of it sits in reserves. I said, ah, very interesting. Some, uh, define some. And then he wrote back, I don't want to play this game anymore because he knew what I was doing. Here's the deal. If you deposit a dollar in the bank, about 90 cents of it is loaned out. The bank keeps about 10% in reserves here or there. So that money that's loaned out is spent on homes and tractors and buildings and machines. It's spent. The progressives have this idea that if the government doesn't take your money and spend it and grow the economy, and you if they don't do that and you keep your money and you put it in a bank, it's wasting it. It disappears. It goes away. No, it's still spent. Just not by unaccountable, unelected bureaucrats and politicians. You spend it more wisely than anyone else. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, thanks for being here. So on my local show, we've been uh, spending time talking about the slogan, Make America Great Again. And what does that mean exactly? I mean, we, we've talked about it for a year or so, kind of like in a joking way here and there. Um, but I was, I was, a couple weeks ago, I was like, you know, what, is, like, what does that really mean? Because if we as conservatives don't define it clearly ourselves then the left will define it for us, <laughs> right? They'll define what we're talking about. I, I thought of this one, uh, the Daily Show did this silly thing in uh, the Republican convention, and they went around to people in Cleveland, Republicans, and said, what year was America great? And someone would say, 1950. And they say, oh, when women couldn't, or when women were blah, 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 whatever. It's like, no, no, what, uh, so, oh, when was America great? 1776. Oh, when there were slaves back. In, that's when America was great. I mean, give me a break. Jeez, shut up. Like that's it really bothered me. But if we couldn't define what that saying meant, then that's what they would do. They would say, oh, Republicans think America was great when women couldn't vote or when there was slavery or when uh, black people couldn't go to school or whatever. So no, that's not what we're talking about. But let's not give them that opening. You with me? So what I've come to, to learn here, and it's a process, um, is it's not an exact time period. It's not that simple. It's more of an idea. And, and I think it's whenever a majority of the people in this country believed in 
personal responsibility. Now, there's a lot that goes to it, too, obviously, but this is the one that I've been thinking about the most lately. When a majority of the people in the country believed in personal responsibility. Now, that word's thrown around a lot as a conservative buzzword. A lot of people think it means selfish. Or, or no, not even selfish. Yes, selfish, but also... Uh, like loner, like the the left will say uh, that conservatives believe in an on your own economy, an on your own economy. Like no, that's that's absurd. <laughs> no way is that what anyone believes or could achieve. That's impossible. But personal responsibility, I think part of that is so you're not a burden on others. Okay, you want to be. You want to have personal responsibility so you're not a burden on other people. And you want to be you want to have personal responsibility so that if someone is in a tough time, you can help them. You're in a position to help other people. And you're saying, well, hold on, Slater. <laughs> Doesn't that negate each other? Because if you say it's about not being a burden on others but also being in a position to help others, isn't that other person being a burden on you? Well, no, it's most certainly not. They're not a burden on you. The person who needs help is not a burden on you because first of all, they're grateful. And second, they're not entitled. So it's a blessing to give. Very different than welfare. And that's how this model works. And it's a building up model. Everyone wins in that relationship. And I would say in a welfare model, everyone loses. In a personal responsibility model, everyone wins. I want to play this uh, three-minute video here. It's a Prager University video. These are all really good. If you haven't had a chance to uh, listen to any of these, I'm sure you've seen them online. They're really good. This one may be one of the best yet. This is one of the first that I've seen from uh, from a regular person. Uh, by that, I mean like not a professor or something. Um, I think this, I think, I think it's excellent. Uh, take it all in. It's worth playing in full 1053. Here's what I was told during my freshman orientation at Haverford college. Ask for help when you need it. Speak up when you feel uncomfortable, place your own well-being above all other concerns. In short, the school was ready to protect me from any personal slights or hurt feelings I might suffer. What counted as a personal slight or similar offense was up to me to define. This surprised me. It surprised me because at McDonald's, where I worked before I started school, acting in this way would have probably cost me my job, a job I needed in order to go to college. The most important thing at McDonald's was not how I felt, but how my customers felt. It was my job and the job of everyone working there to make others, namely the customers, happy. I worked at the front counter. That meant that if there was a problem with an order, I had to deal with it. The issues weren't complicated. It was usually something like a missing piece of cheese from a McDouble or whipped cream on a milkshake when they hadn't wanted any. Whatever it was, I had to listen patiently and mentally take notes so that I could report the relevant details to someone who could actually correct the problem. Oddly enough, customers were not interested in carefully crafting their complaints in such a way as to spare my feelings. They were in a rush to get back to work, or they were dealing with their screaming kids, or they had calculated the cost of their meal down to the cent out of necessity and could not afford a mistake. And they had a right to have their meal served the way they ordered it. If a mistake was made, we fixed it as quickly as possible and didn't talk back. 
even if I believed the customer had misunderstood some aspect of their order and was actually the one at fault, I was instructed to give the person the benefit of the doubt. Their feelings mattered more than mine. At McDonald's, there was no trigger warning for when a customer was about to start yelling, no safe spaces to go to when the restaurant would get so busy that I barely had time to breathe between orders. When a group of men in the drive-thru would whistle and catcall me as they pulled away, there was no university administrator for me to run to for soothing and reassurance. And from these experiences, the good, the bad, and the flat-out ugly, I grew. Or, to use a word one doesn't see much anymore, I matured. I learned to take care of myself in ways that didn't inconvenience anyone, or draw unnecessary attention to myself, or let my personal problems interfere with the work that had to be done. In short, I had a job to do, and people counted on me to do it. Had I complained to my McDonald's manager that I became anxious when the restaurant was crowded, or that hearing complaints from customers made me nervous, he would have politely handed me my paycheck and shown me the door. I would have gone home and been unable to pay the student contribution from summer work that was built into my financial aid package. So I'm grateful to have worked at McDonald's. It taught me how to better handle my anxiety, how to work with others in pursuit of a common goal. It strengthened my character, my work ethic, and my sense of my own resilience. These are lessons that cannot be learned in the safe spaces of the Haverford campus. Here's one more thing I learned. Putting oneself first is the essence of privilege, but putting oneself first does not develop character or lead to personal growth. Putting others first does. McDonald's is a far better teacher of that lesson than college. I'm Olivia Legaspi of Haverford College for Prager University. Wow, perfect, right? That's perfection across the board. Oh, there's, so, there's so much greatness in that. I love the line, I have no time for feeling slighted or offended. Uh, and it's not about me, it's about the customers. That's it. That's, that's putting either yourself or others first. That's the decision. I think what a lot of people mean, I, and I don't know, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but when, when I think, you know, make America great again, I think it harkens back to a time when people put others first. More often. Now, obviously, not everyone did that, but seemed like more did. I think that that's part of it. one 888 Mike Slater. So the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. Slater, because I just want to take a minute here to talk about uh, Donald Trump's Second Amendment people comment about Hillary the other day um, and how Second Amendment people will take care of it if she wins. This is in 2008. This is Keith Olbermann on uh, on MSNBC talking about Hillary Clinton. Hit it. Finally tonight has promised a special comment on Senator Clinton's assassination remark to the editorial board of the Argus Leader newspaper of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Once again, it was this. Asked if her continuing fight for the nomination against Senator Obama hurts the Democratic Party, she replied, quote, I don't, because again, I've been around long enough 
You know, my husband did not wrap up the nomination in 1992 until he won the California primary somewhere in the middle of June, right? We all remember Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in June in California. You know, I just don't understand it. You know, there's lots of speculation about why it is. The comments were recorded, and we showed them to you earlier, and they are online as we speak. She actually said those words. Those words, Senator, you actually invoked the nightmare of political assassination. You actually invoked the specter of an inspirational leader at the seeming moment of triumph for himself and a battered nation yearning to breathe free, silenced forever. You actually used the word assassination in the middle of a campaign with a loud undertone of racial hatred and gender hatred and political hatred. You actually used the word assassination in a time when there is a fear, unspoken but vivid and terrible, that our again troubled land and fractured political landscape might target a black man running for president or a white man or a white woman. You actually use those words in this America, Senator, while running against an African-American man whom against the death threat started the moment he declared his campaign. You actually use those words in this America, Senator, while running to break your greatest glass ceiling and claiming there are people who would do anything to stop you. You, Senator, never mind the implications of using the word assassination in any context relative to Senator Obama. What about you? You cannot say this. The references, said her spokesperson, were not in any way weighted. The allusions, said Mo Olithi, are, quote, historical examples of the nominating process going well into the summer, and any reading into it beyond that would be in our inaccurate and outrageous. I'm sorry, there is no inaccuracy. Not for a moment does any rational person believe Senator Clinton is actually hoping for the worst of all political calamities. Yet the outrage belongs not to Senator Clinton nor her supporters, but to every other American. Firstly, she has previously bordered on the remarks she made today, then swerved back from them and the awful skid they represented. She said in an off-camera interview with Time on March 6th, primary contest used to last a lot longer. We all remember the great tragedy of Bobby Kennedy being assassinated in June in L.A. My husband didn't wrap up the nomination in 1992 until June, also in California. Having a primary contest go through June is nothing particularly unusual. We will see how it unfolds as we go forward over the next three to four months. In retrospect, we failed her when we did not call her out for that remark, dry and only disturbing inside the pages of a magazine. But somebody obviously warned her of the danger of that kind of rhetoric. After the Indiana primary on May 7th, she told supporters at a Washington hotel, sometimes you got to calm people down a little bit, but if you look at a successful presidential campaigns, my husband did not get the nomination until June of 1992. I remember tragically when Senator Kennedy won California near the end of that process. And at Shepherdstown, West Virginia, on the same day, she again avoided the word assassination. You know, I remember very well what happened in the California primary in 1968. As you know, Senator Kennedy won that primary. On March 6th, she had said assassinated. By May 7th, she had avoided it. Today, she went back into an awful well. There is no this good is unforgivable because this nation's deepest shame, its most enduring horror, its most terrifying legacy is political assassination. Lincoln, Garfield, McKinley, Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. And for the grace of the universe or the luck of the draw, Reagan, Ford, Truman, Nixon, Andrew Jackson, both Roosevelt's, even George Wallace. The politics of this nation is steeped enough in blood, Senator Clinton. You cannot and must not invoke that imagery anywhere, at any time. And to not appreciate immediately, to still not appreciate tonight just what you have done today, is to reveal an incomprehension about the America you seek to lead.
This senator is too much because a senator, a politician, a person who can let hang in midair the prospect that she might just be sticking around in part just in case the other guy gets shot has no business being and no capacity to be the president of the United States. 2008 Keith Olbermann. What Trump said, I think it was Wednesday, Thursday, is a, is a really good example of how people hear what they want to hear or, or don't hear what they don't want to hear. If you hate Trump, if you think he's a dangerous Hitler, then you heard him to tell people to go kill Hillary Clinton. If you support Trump, then you heard him talk about how law-abiding gun owners need to band together to vote against Hillary in November. And either side will argue until they're blue in the face about what he meant and what they heard. But just for a minute here, let's flip it around. What is the left going to say if Donald Trump gets assassinated? The left keeps saying over and over again that he's the next Hitler. And if Hitler got assassinated, that, that would be morally justified. You know what, they, you know what the left's main characterization of, of uh, Trump is? He's dangerous. They keep saying he's dangerous. Like the whole nuclear, we can't let him get his hands on the nuclear codes. If they keep pushing that narrative, there's going to be one person who says, I'm going to save America by preventing a dangerous person from getting into the White House. The more you characterize him as dangerous, crazy, unhinged, the more moral permission you give to someone to go kill this dangerous man. The New Yorker had uh, a cartoon. It was the Ghostbusters women standing in front of his giant Donald Trump. And the captain said, I know we strictly bust ghosts, but I feel this is a shot we need to take. Here's the deal. I'm willing to call a truce on all this. Of course. Stop with all this. Any assassination reference, obviously. right? But also, I think we have enough faux outrage. Right? We can still talk as human beings without tailoring everything we say to the one potentially unstable person out there who might actually go get a gun and kill someone. Mark Chapman killed John Lennon because of Catcher in the Rye. John Hinckley Jr. tried to kill Reagan to impress Jody Foster. Are we going to blame J.D. Salinger and Jody Foster for that? No. Now let's not forget, someone did try to kill Trump at a Secret Service rally, tried to steal a Secret Service, or at a rally, tried to steal a Secret Service agent's gun, but pretend that never happened. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. How are you? Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. So during the break there, I uh, you know, I had like a couple minutes. So I was like, I'm going to see what's going on in the Olympics. So go to NBCOlympics.com, which by the way is a terrible website. I don't want to get off topic, but I hate when you go to the Olympic website and it tells you what happened. Like the other day, I didn't get to watch one of the, the swimming relays. So I was like, oh, I wonder how the girls did in the four by two in a relay. So I go to NBCOlympics.com. I want to watch the relay. And the big headline is women take gold in four by two in a relay. And it's like, well, why, why would you do that? You just gave me it gave it away. Why don't you say, did the women 
you know, place first, click here to watch. And then, and then I would click it, but would give it away before you. Anyway. So I go to NBCOlympics.com and uh, one of the live events going on right now is women's field hockey. I've never seen a women's field hockey game, uh, but I thought, heck, the women's soccer team lost the other day to Sweden. Maybe the women's field hockey team can be like the new cool fun story of uh, of team usa for the year I was, all right, so i'll tune into women's field hockey i got two minutes off so so game starts boom and uh i'm watching the game and i'm like i don't know how this this game works at all the camera pans on it goes to this girl and this girl's jumping up and down and i go gosh she looks familiar and they go oh there she is lauren crandall captain of team usa so whoa what we were friends in like second grade <laughs> that's my that's that's my story. I was like, we were we were best buds in second grade. We hung out all the time. I haven't seen her in I don't know, whatever. What, what would that be? Twenty five years. I was like, gosh, she looks familiar. She's the captain of the women's field hockey team playing in the Olympics. And then I go to her Twitter account, and she lives here in San Diego. That's weird. What are the chances of that? All right, so there it is. There's my plug for women's field hockey, who four years ago got an embarrassing last place. This year. Right now, competing against Team GB, Great Britain, for first place out of Pool B, which gives them the number one seed for the quarterfinals, which start in two days. That's what I learned in the last two minutes. So there you go. Women's field hockey. Check it out. They're going to be the new darlings of Team USA. And my old friend, Lauren Crandall. <laughs> what? How could that be? All right. On to something that anyone listening cares about. So I heard Glenn Beck the other day talking about uh, how in many schools... And, and different curriculums across the country. World War II doesn't... Like, so, if, so history class, we're going to study World War II, but it doesn't include anything about the Holocaust or anything about what the Japanese did. So, so, well, what, so what is it? Well, studying World War II today is about Japanese internment, right? how, how we rounded up all the Japanese, and how we dropped... Uh, two nuclear bombs and killed a lot of people. That's what kids are learning about World War II. That's right, we, how horrible we are. How we rounded up the Japanese and, and then dropped nuclear bombs on innocent people. 71 years ago last week was the 71st anniversary of Hiroshima. This will be pitched in history classes across the country as an evil thing we did. With no context. Just like our founding fathers were slave owners. And we, we, uh, we talked about a professor, I guess a teacher, who does a 10-question history quiz at the beginning of every year to juniors and seniors. And he says 9 out of every 10 juniors and seniors believe that slavery was an American invention. Nine out of 10 high schoolers believe that slavery started in America and only happened in America. Nowhere else. And if you think about it, why wouldn't they think that? I guarantee you kids are not taught about the African slave trade, let alone the Muslim slave trade or slave trade in Asia. And if they are taught about the African slave trade, they're certainly not told that of 10 million slaves who were shipped from Africa to the New World, only 400,000, that's 4%, 400,000 were sent to America, 5 million sent to Brazil, and the rest sent throughout the Caribbean. No proper context given to that whatsoever. 
Never. Purposefully not given proper context. So if that's the case, which it is, why wouldn't kids think that America invented slavery? And the reason for this is to make the impression that America is at its core evil and wrong. That our founders are bad people. And therefore the Constitution should no longer apply. It's one thing to argue that the Constitution is old. You've heard that before, right? It's outdated. Doesn't apply anymore. But that argument's not effective. What's much more effective is to argue that the Constitution was written by a bunch of slave-owning, racist, sexist bigots. And that's what they're doing. So I want to take a minute here on the 71st anniversary, plus a week, uh, and provide some context to the Hiroshima bombing. Now, I know it's a Saturday, and I know you probably don't want to hear these things, but just put them away in your brain and make sure that your kids know the full story because they're not being told it anywhere else. I guarantee it. So the classic thing that people say uh, about dropping the nuclear bomb, they say, if we didn't drop it, then the war would have dragged on for years and we would have done this Island hopping thing. And tens of thousands of Americans would have died every Island we hopped on. And it would have taken us forever to get to the mainland. And then who knows what would have happened. That's hundred percent true. But that alone doesn't tell the story of the pure evilness of the Japanese at this time. So I want to quote here from Laura, Laura Hillenbrand's book, Unbroken. This is the story of Louis Zamperini. If you haven't read it yet, please read it. Um, Angelina Jolie directed the movie about Louis, uh, Unbroken. Book was written in 2010, I think. Great book. Read it. I just want to read a couple passages here. Brace yourselves, but this is reality, and this is what kids aren't taught. She says Louis had been on uh, this is a uh, prisoner of war camp for about a week when his cell door had been thrown was thrown open and two guards pulled him out. He flushed with fear, thinking that he was being taken to the sword. As he was hustled towards what seemed to be an officer's quarter, he passed by two girls with Asian features, walking with heads down, eyes averted, as they retreated from the building. The ranking officer stared coolly at his captive. How do American soldiers satisfy their sexual appetites? He asked. Louis replied that they didn't. They rely on willpower. The officer was amused. The Japanese military, he said, provides women for its soldiers. An allusion to the thousands of Chinese, Korean, and Filipino women whom the Japanese military had kidnapped and forced into sexual slavery. Louis thought of the girls outside. All right. So Japanese took sex slaves. Remind you of anything today? Okay, let's move on. This one is, uh, well, if there's any kids listening now, turn the radio down for about 60 seconds. And then there was Gaga. Something about this affectionate little duck. Perhaps the fact that he was beloved by the captives provoked the guards. They tortured him mercilessly, kicking him and hurling him around. Then one day in full view of the captives, one of the prison guards 
opened his pants and violated the bird. Gaga died. Of all the things he witnessed in war, Louis would say this was the worst. Okay, bestiality from the Japanese guards. Remind you of anything today? I got another one. Uh, Raymond Halloran was a navigator who parachuted into Tokyo after his B-29 was shot down. Once on the ground, Halloran was beaten by a mob of civilians, then captured by Japanese authorities who tortured him, locked him in a pig cage, and held him in a burning horse stall during the firebombings. They stripped him naked and put him on display at Tokyo Zoo, tied upright in an empty tiger cage so civilians could gawk at his filthy, sore-encrusted body. He was starved so severely that he lost 100 pounds. Torturing in public, being locked in cages. Remind you of anything today? All right, one more. In the city of Nanking, stranding more than half a million civilians and 90,000 Chinese soldiers, the soldiers surrendered and assured of their safety, submitted to being bound. Japanese officers then issued a written order. All prisoners of war are to be executed. What followed was a six-week frenzy of killing that defies articulation. Masses of POWs were beheaded, machine-gunned, bayoneted, and burned alive. The Japanese turned on civilians, engaging in killing contests, raping tens of thousands of people, mutilating and crucifying them, and provoking dogs to maul them. Japanese soldiers took pictures of themselves, posing alongside uh, hacked up bodies, severed heads, and women strapped down for rape. The Japanese press ran tallies of the killing contests as if they were baseball scores, praising the heroism of the contestants. Historians estimate that the Japanese military murdered between 200,000 and 430,000 Chinese, including 90,000 POWs, in what became known as the Rape of Nanking. All right, let's get back to the bombing. So Louis said that he noticed um, and he later heard about more about to confirm what he heard and saw women throughout Japan sharpening sticks and or or women holding sharpened sticks and, and kids lining up in front of their schools were given fake guns and drilled. The people of Japan saw surrender as shameful. They were preparing to fight to the last woman and child. Louis was tipped off that there was an order to kill all the POWs on August 22nd. Samuel said, would they really do that? Well, they did in China. Killed 400,000 Chinese. Killed 90,000 Chinese prisoners of war. I'll read one last part here. Japan held 130,000 POWs from America, Britain, Canada, etc. Of those, nearly 36,000 died. More than one in every four. Americans... 37% died. Think about this. 
So of the of the Americans that Japanese held as prisoner of war, thirty seven percent of them died in captivity. Thirty seven percent. By comparison, only one percent of Americans held by the Nazis and Italians died. So the Nazis took Americans captive and only 1% of them died in captivity. The Japanese took Americans, 37% of them died. Japan murdered thousands of POWs on death marches and worked thousands of others to death in slavery, including some 16,000 POWs who died alongside as many as 100,000 Asian laborers forced to build the Burma-Siam Railway. Thousands of other POWs were beaten, burned, stabbed, or clubbed to death, shot, beheaded, killed during medical experiments, or eaten alive in ritual acts of cannibalism. I think you get the idea. Uh, let's stop here. Or I'll go here. Uh, last last point. Uh, in accordance with the... Blah, 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 da, 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 da. In accordance with the kill order, the Japanese massacred all 5,000 Korean captives in one camp and all the POWs in three others and all but 11 POWs in another camp. They were evidently about to murder all the other POWs in their custody when the atomic bomb brought their empire crashing down. On the morning of September 2nd, 1945, Japan signed its formal surrender. The Second World War was over. There was a kill order. On August 2nd. Kill all the POWs. We dropped a bomb in Hiroshima on August 6th. And then August 9th on Nagasaki. Context is important. Only once you know the full story can we have an honest discussion on whether or not it was a morally justified and right thing to do drop those nuclear bombs make sure your kids know the full story we can't forget our history and we certainly can't let anyone convince you and your kids that we are an evil country it's not true mike slater show the blaze radio network spread the word this is mike slater on the blaze radio network Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, I got a uh, quick segment here. I want to present this argument here from Josh um, Galenter. I think we've we've laid some groundwork for this before, but Josh takes it to the next level, and, and I I think I agree with this. I just I want to present it, see what you think, and and you can do what you want with it. But I I think this is right. His argument is that Democrats are way too reliant on the Hispanic vote and it won't mean anything uh, soon. Now, I don't really think that the Hispanic vote means anything now, to be honest. I think it's all, it's I always way overblown in this election. Trump needs to win the rust belt States, right? The, the, the swing States, the rust belt States and like, so Wisconsin, Michigan, rest. The Hispanic vote is negligible. Um, in Michigan, it's two percent. In Wisconsin, it's three percent of the vote. I mean, the gay vote is higher than the Hispanic vote. And even in Florida, it's only eighteen percent. Isn't that crazy? Hispanics are only eighteen percent of the Florida vote, um, which is 
totally insurmountable, even if they all voted Democrat. So you can't rely on that, uh, certainly now, but I don't even think in the future. And, And here's his argument. So since the 1850s, Democrats have been all about the special interest vote. Uh, when the Irish were the main immigrant group, Tammany Hall, uh, that was the Democrats' New York City machine led by Boss Tweed, he pandered to Irish immigrants, right? Because they were the largest immigrant group. And then over time, and not that long, Irish immigrants just became white people. And then they were eclipsed by Italian immigrants. And the Italians voted almost all Democratic. And then over time, they just became white people and voted 50-50 and there was no more desire to you know treat them differently they just wanted to assimilate and be like everyone else they became white so there's no more group to pander to that's why no one talks about the irish vote today is there is any are there any is there any polling on who's doing better among the italians trump or hillary like no that's absurd there's no pandering to these groups anymore they're just white so and when people say well it's the white vote that's really the same as the Italian, Irish, Polish, Hungarian, Romanian, Jewish, Russian, Swedish, Norwegian, French, Dutch, Scottish, Welsh, English vote, which all used to be its own specific particular vote at one point, but now it's not. Now, right now, we happen to be in the middle of Hispanics being the largest immigrant group, even though that word doesn't even really mean anything anyway. It's too broad. Um, I mean, even the former president of Mexico, Vincente Fox, is a white guy. Right? German ancestry. His real name is Folks. And they changed it to Fox, F-O-X. It was like F-O-C-H-S or something. So he's a white guy. So, but anyway, the point is, in not too long, this guy's point is, Josh's point is, Mexicans will be eating fast food and speaking English, all the rest. And yeah, now they vote 90% Democrat, but it'll be 50-50 just like the Romanian vote or whatever, just like any other immigrant group. And the Democrats will then have to find another core constituency, a new special interest group, a new group of victims to pander to. I think that's probably right. Now, maybe you can make a counter argument that Hispanics and or whoever immigrants today aren't assimilating like immigrants did in the past. And maybe there's truth to that. But at worst, I think it just means it'll take a little bit longer before that before Hispanics today are no longer the group du jour of Democrats. Assimilation, that's the key, as always. Now, they'll do everything they can to prevent that, the Democrats, prevent the groups from assimilating. But look to Texas. Majority of Hispanics in Texas vote conservative. So, Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Slater. Just looking at the medal standings for swimming in this Olympics. Uh, United States, 29 medals. Uh, the top, Australia second with eight. 29 to eight. What? We have 14 gold medals. Australia second with three. And then Hungary with three. And the only reason Hungary is three is because of Kantika Hosu, who she has all three. Because um, she's absurd. 14 gold medals. 29 total medals. So tonight, uh, so I was a swimmer by trade, swimmer, swimmer my whole life, college, all that. 
Um, so I get, I, I get fired up once every four years. I, so we got the 50 freestyle Simone Manuel who won the 100, maybe able to pull out the double on the 50. That'd be huge. But it's 50 free. Anything can happen. And then uh, we get the men, the fifth, the mile, the swim in the mile. It takes about 14 minutes. Uh, we're ranked second and third, our two guys, and they've had a great Olympic so far. Maybe they could go one, two in that. And then we got the two medley relays at the end. 100 yards, each stroke, Michael Phelps, final race, and we should uh, win both of those as well. So final night of swimming. Should be a lot of fun night. You can tune in. Um, all right. So a report came back from the Baltimore Police Department and, or about the Baltimore Police Department, and it's not good. Um, I'm just going to take it for what it is now. Okay. The report found that police, quote, routinely discriminate against blacks, repeatedly use excessive force, and are not adequately held account for misconduct. So, for now, we're just going to go with that. Uh, we'll save any justifications and police officer perspective for another day. We've done that many times before. I want to take that for, we'll take it for gospel now. And I want to make one specific argument. Who runs the police department? Heck, who runs these cities? It's amazing to me all the outrage, which, hey, Righteous outrage. Okay, we talk on this show a lot about faux outrage, right? Like people pretending to be outraged about things. No, no, no. There's a good reason. Okay, if if this is indeed true, oh, good. Yes, outrage. But you got to direct it at the right people. Who runs these cities? I want to quote Kevin D. Williamson. He says, St. Louis has not had a Republican mayor since the 1940s. The city is overwhelmingly democratic, effectively a single party political monopoly from its schools to its police department. Baltimore has seen two Republicans sit in the mayor's office since the 1920s, none since the 1960s. Philadelphia has not elected a Republican mayor since 1948. The last Republican to be elected mayor of Detroit was congratulated on his victory by President Eisenhower. Atlanta a city so corrupt that its public schools are organized as a criminal conspiracy against its children. There are people in jail right now because of, uh, who, who used to run the public school system in Atlanta. But the last last had Atlanta last had a Republican mayor in the 19th century. 19th the 1800s. Atlanta is a single-party political monopoly from its schools to its police department. American cities are, by and large, Democratic Party monopolies. Monopolies generally dominated by the so-called progressive wing of the party. Black urban communities face institutional failure across the board every day. There are people who should be made to answer for that. What has Martin O'Malley to say for himself? Martin O'Malley, I see him on TV a bunch. He's a Hillary uh, supporter, mayor of... um, former mayor of Baltimore and then governor of Maryland, but particularly mayor of Baltimore. What does he got to say for himself? What does Ed Rendell say for himself? He was the former mayor of Philadelphia. What has Nancy Pelosi done about the radical racial divide in San Francisco? Nothing. End quote. Trump needs to jump all over this. What's, what's going on? These failures are, yes, institutional and can't possibly 
be blamed on Republicans or or not. I don't, I don't even want to make a partisan so much as conservative principles, right? There hasn't been a person in a in a political leadership role who has conservative principles in a century in in some of these cities, a hundred years, many generations. So what are we doing? I, I I saw a headline. I didn't read the story. I should have, so I'm hesitant to even share this. But the point was about how low Trump's poll numbers are among black people in America. And that's a horrible shame because Rand Paul, gosh, second time we referenced Rand Paul today. Weird. Uh, Rand Paul did a really great job last couple of years of giving speeches at black universities and speaking in inner cities and, and spreading a conservative message. That's what needs to happen. There's no reason why Trump's economic message should not resonate with the majority of people in our cities. This was, maybe still is, an election that could have turned the black vote, I hate that term so much, into a majority Republican vote, honestly. And could have left, it could have made it very obvious, it still can, 80-something days left, what Democratic monopolies in these cities has, has, has left, um, what they're left with. It is disgraceful. Disgraceful. One last quote here from uh, Kevin D. Williamson. He says, would any sentient adult American be shocked to learn that Baltimore has a corrupt and feckless police department enabled by a corrupt and feckless city government? When will the left be held to account for the brutality in Baltimore? Brutality for which it bears a measure of responsibility uh, on both sides. Let me word that again. I'm sorry. That wasn't the right tone. Brutality for which it bears a measure of responsibility on both sides. There aren't any Republicans out there cheering on the looters. And there aren't any Republicans exercising real political power over the police or other municipal institutions in Baltimore. Community organizer Andrew Jackson, Adam Jackson, declared that in Baltimore, the Democrats and the Republicans have both failed. Really? Which Republicans? Ulysses S. Grant? Unless I'm reading the charts wrong, the Baltimore City Council is 100% Democratic. You get the idea. So, fault all around here. Yes, we need to make changes within every police department across the country, probably. No department is perfect, right? Okay. Some further away from perfection than others. Let's make the necessary changes. Let's do it now. What's the holdup? People living in dangerous communities need to get their lives together, strengthen families, put an emphasis on education again. School year is about to to start up here. I'm not going to get started now because I don't have time, but the the fact that there's so many kids. uh, How do I word this? I shouldn't have said it that way. I was making it too soft. The fact that there are so many parents who do not feed their kids breakfast every morning is one of the greatest moral failings of our country it it is it's an abomination that more and more kids every year eat breakfast at school because their parents don't feed them okay that's what i say by get your lives together feed your kids okay can we do that the message that that sends to kids that their their parents who are tasked with taking care of them for their lives don't feed them and instead they should get their food from the government building like that is outrageous 
Oh, Slater, but uh, uh, you know, people don't have time. I mean, what are the, are the adults not eating? The only way I will excuse uh, an adult not feeding their kid breakfast before school is if the adults are also not eating breakfast. As in, like, they don't have any money, they don't have time to feed themselves. Okay, but I'm pretty sure that these adults are eating breakfast and lunch and just not feeding their kids breakfast and lunch. Anyway, I don't want to get in a whole rant with that, but that's what I mean by get your life together, get your, get your act together. Put the emphasis on family, take responsibility, put an emphasis on education again. Education and family, education and family, cultural changes. Let's do those. Yes, but here's the main point of this segment. We also need to wake up and say, hey, uh, let's try something different politically. Okay, because the policies that we've had these last couple, I don't know, decades slash century clearly isn't working. A lot of different things need to happen at the same time. Yes, police department changes. Yes, cultural changes. But a few political changes wouldn't hurt as well. Now, whose fault is that? I don't know. Maybe our fault. Maybe we got to do a better job of reaching out, expressing our policies, explaining why they are better, why school choice, why charter schools are better for your kids, why lower taxes are better for your community, because then people will invest in your community and then you can have jobs and you can make way more money than welfare, et cetera. We can go on and on. No one can vote for something they don't know about. And that's unfortunate, but times have never been better. For people to wake up to the conservative movement and its conservative principles. Times have never been better because lives in our inner cities have never been worse. Trump's got 80-something days to turn that around. one 888 Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Cassettes, I got one more uh, immigration point here. This is uh, from Washington Post, which is the liberal D.C. newspaper. They said it's not just native-born Americans, not just native-born Americans expressing nativist sentiments these days. Somehow, it's immigrants too. I love that line. Somehow... (laughs) <laughs> somehow immigrants don't like all other immigrants. And I love this. And I'll just get the punchline here. It's because a lot of people on the left can't draw a distinction between legal immigration and illegal immigration to them. All immigrants are just the same. Uh, all right. So this is Rosa Barov, an 86 year old immigrant who came from Kiev in 2003 quote. I think that enough immigrants have entered the country. This is Olga Dubova. Came from Ukraine in 95. Quote, we also came here as immigrants in our own time, but we can't let in crooks. We can't let in untrustworthy people that will cause us problems. Uh, Valentia Albert came from Moldova. Speaking about Trump, I like his honesty that he's against Muslims, that he's against refugees. Uh, Again, Washington Post. In recent months, I've heard similar anti-immigrant rhetoric from other U.S. immigrants. Many are convinced that today's newcomers are more dangerous to society than they themselves ever were. Uh, When they arrived, 
these established immigrants argue, they worked hard, learned English, assimilated, pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. By contrast, the newbies are predominantly lazy, law-breaking, non-English-speaking, unwashed masses seeking welfare rather than work. All right, check that. Check out this. This is an incredible sentence. In a U.S. survey conducted by Pew this spring, half, half of all foreign-born whites, so white immigrants, said that the growing number of newcomers, quote, threatens traditional American customs and values rather than strengthens them. Think about that. So you're an immigrant from 10 years ago. Okay, you're an immigrant from, I don't know, these ladies from uh, Ukraine, right? Come to America 10 years ago. Now you're at, and you, like, you come and strengthen American customs and traditions, right, and values. You're now asked, if, if new immigrants threaten or strengthen and, and half say threaten, that's amazing. Astoundingly, there was no significant difference in responses to this question among white immigrants, their children, or their grandchildren. How could this possibly be? Now, th- this would be so interesting. I'm, I'm so, this election could go either way, right? I'm, I, for about a year ago, I said Trump's going to win in a landslide. I still think he will. I think there's a huge secret Trump vote out there. I think all the metrics of polling are wrong. Um, I think it's, I think everyone's I think it's way off. I think I think Trump will win, but who knows? I, I, no one knows. Um, but what if Trump wins the vote among immigrants? What if Trump wins the immigrant vote in November, and he wins it on a platform? of stopping illegal immigration. What if what if that platform, what if that policy position of stopping illegal immigration appeals to a majority of immigrants? Wouldn't that throw a loop for Democrats? Because all they try to do is, is strengthen their, their supposed hold on, the, on being the party of immigrants and minorities. But maybe that's not even the right message for immigrants. Maybe the message for, for immigrants is... To, 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 to control the border and protect and, and you know keep a track on who's coming across. Maybe I'm not explaining this. Wouldn't that be wild if the whole loving immigrants and open borders isn't really for recent immigrants? What if that message only appeals to self-righteous virtue-signaling natives? Virtue-signaling meaning people like, oh, I support open borders because... It's the right thing to do. Aren't I wonderful? Right? Like that. Like, like I'm such a great person because I believe in open borders. Like that, that's virtue signaling. Aren't I great? What if that whole message from the Democrats about open borders and all the rest is really just for those people? But if you ask the actual immigrants, they're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. I actually like Trump's plan. What if a majority of immigrants are against illegal immigration? That is a narrative buster for the left. And I think it might be true. Because again, they can draw the distinction between legal immigrants and illegal. Oh, this would be a fascinating election. 80-something days left. Glad you're here. We can hang out the whole rest of the week until we see you next Saturday on our Facebook page. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Please like us there. And uh, Slater Radio on Twitter. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Go USA. We'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word.
You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.